sport is often a one of those things that that drives you to learn maybe specific types of words to to grasp a language but i find it fascinating to see uh, that sort of development of 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 uh, footballers both on and off the pitch because language is so crucial isn't it to being comfortable in a new city in a new place wherever you might be settling Hello and welcome to the final episode of the second series of Rosetta Stone's More Than Words podcast. We've spoken to fascinating people and experts in the field of language and linguistics to answer the most pressing questions about learning another language. I've guided you through different topics such as memorizing vocabulary, improving your accent and learning slang. But now it's time to answer the top 10 questions that you, our More Than Words listeners, have been submitting to us about learning another language. Today, we are joined again by Susie Dent, and we've also got a very special guest who has just started out on his own language learning journey, BBC Breakfast and Football Focus presenter, Dan Walker. Dan and Susie, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Dan, perhaps we could start out with you. How is your language learning journey going? Uh, it's, um, it's fresh. It feels rather new. It was all inspired by Susie, actually. Um, we've worked together over the last few years on, uh, well, I say worked together, I've sat next to Susie on Countdown a few times, and I'm always uh, bedazzled by her sort of uh, wordsmithery. And I saw that, um, it was, I think it was a few weeks ago, uh, Susie put out a, a tweet saying that three million people have learnt a language during lockdown. And I thought, oh, my word, that's another thing that makes me feel <laughs> spectacularly inadequate. And I'm, I'm one of those people, there's two... I'm sure there's probably quite a few people watching and listening to this who feel the same. There's, there's a couple of things I regret from when I was younger. One is um, I didn't learn the piano. I'd love to have done that. And the other thing is I didn't pay any attention to languages at school because I, I was too busy messing about, playing football, doing all that sort of stuff. And um, so I thought, well, I can. why don't I actually try and make a difference to one of those? So I signed up to Rosetta Stone, I think it was that day or the next day, and um, I started learning Spanish and I've, I've um, sort of done it every day since with, a, you know, I think you meant to do five a week. I've definitely done that. I'm, re- actually, I'm actually really enjoying it, which is a complete opposite to how I was with languages at school. I would do everything to avoid it and uh, mess about and cause Frau Perkis, my German teacher. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I'm sure they remember it very badly from school report times, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So thank you, Susie, for the inspiration. Ah, oh, I'm so glad. What, what was it about school uh, German that you didn't like? Was it just the way it was taught? No, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was just my, I, didn't, I don't think at the time I had my head in the right place. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe if, at the time, it was just a case of, right, we're learning vocabulary and we're going to drum this into you. And I loved history at school. I studied history at university and I had a brilliant history teacher who sort of from, from day one explained why history was important and why it was crucial to understand our past, to understand our present and to try and get a handle on the future. And I, I suppose he framed it brilliantly and I was inspired from day one. And maybe if my language teachers had sort of tried that inspirational step from the beginning I think maybe I don't know I'm, I'm not trying to blame them I was entirely responsible but I saw it more as a to give you an idea we did uh, we had a teacher at our school who did uh, Spanish and he was also a, a, um, a Latin graduate so he tried to teach a bit of Latin and this is how me and my friends sort of treated Latin if you got 50% or over in Latin you had to do it the next year so the test was get as close to 50% as you can without getting 50%. And that's that's how you win at Latin. So that that was my poor attitude to languages at school, which I'm trying now to correct. 
you are. It sounds like you're doing brilliantly. Yeah. So, so why did you choose Spanish, Dan? Um, that's a that's a really good question, Alex. Because my wife um, speaks a bit of French, and I've got friends who we went to Spain pre-pandemic with some friends, and I was very impressed with him speaking full Spanish. And I've always, you know, I've, I've had the privileges of traveling around the world and uh, lots of different places. And I, I try and pick up little bits from there. So a bit, tiny bit of Mandarin when I was in China, um, tiny bit of Portuguese in, in Brazil, um, trying to learn a little bit of Afrikaans in uh, South Africa. And it's just, I suppose it's that embarrassment of speaking to somebody from Scandinavia or interviewing a golfer from Spain or Portugal, and they can speak their own language, they can speak English perfectly, and they've probably got another one under their belt as well. And I just think that I don't want to get to 50 and beyond and be one of those people, well, well if you don't speak English, I don't know why I'm putting it on the accent, but you know what I mean? If you don't speak English properly, then I'm, I'm not going to converse with you. I feel that we're in a, um, it's a, we live in a global world, don't we? And, I want to be able to sort of not be five years down the line regretting not having learnt at least one language. But Spanish is, I suppose, an opportunity to speak to lots of people involved in sport or in some of the jobs that I do who also speak Spanish and some of the countries that I go to where I could, you know, buy a cake in a pastelery uh, with, without, uh, um, without having to speak loudly in an English accent. I just want to take a moment to let our More Than Words listeners know that to help apply the tips that you're learning with us, Rosetta Stone has a special offer for all podcast listeners, arming you with everything you need to start learning on the go. Simply go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you'll receive a special offer on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription, which will give you access to all languages for life. The link is in the episode description, so simply click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. I've always wondered how good David Beckham's Spanish got with all those years at Real Madrid. I've heard different rumours. I've heard some people say mm. he actually got quite good and other people said he didn't speak any at all, but... I I, you, you never know. And the thing is, thing, thing is with those is the club will pay happily for you to have as many lessons as you want every day. And, you know, some of those top players, they, they just get a designated language coach to try and help them to learn it. So it's, it's as much as you want to put into it, really. I know, for example, you know, Gary Lineker, he speaks really good Japanese. He speaks really good Spanish. I remember once um, at the golf, uh, he was interviewing Angel Cabrera, who didn't speak uh, hardly any English or wasn't comfortable speaking English. So Gary just did the whole interview in Spanish and then translated it himself. I thought that was pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I love the um, uh, the way that some people in interviews, then wh wh wherever they're playing, they will famously adopt the accent of, uh, of the country <laughs> they're in, but still speaking English. I absolutely love that. The kind of intonation just completely, you know, unconsciously changes. Um, yeah, I, I love it. The um, I always enjoy interviewing footballers, and I, I, just depending on how long they've been in the country before they start using the word gaffer you know, for manager, which is a very sort of British term. Yeah. I love it when I remember interviewing uh, David Ginola years ago and his his French take on Gaffaire was absolutely magnificent. <laughs> but, uh, I think that's, I, I, you, you, Susie is a wordsmith, you must love that, where you've got that sort of combination of languages and accents and those yeah. well-known terms, but how they are 
sort of almost translated in a different dialect is fascinating, I think. Yeah, and actually that one was particularly good because gaffer always was a dialect term and it's a, it's a shortening of godfather and mm. there was a gamma as well, which is a shortening of godmother, but gaffer was the one that, that stuck around. And so to hear that in a French accent is brilliant. It's kind of gone from Yorkshire to Paris um, in a second. <laughs> Great. I love the other one. The other one I always enjoy is I remember um, there's a, a, an Italian called Benito Carboni who signed for Sheffield Wednesday years ago. And... Um, I did one of his first interviews, uh, but Paolo Di Canio was there at the same time. And his English was really uh, bitty. Um, you know, he was able to, someone had told him to say at the end of every interview, Happy New Year, but he was saying Happy New Year in the middle of August. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember being at a training session at Sheffield Wednesday when one of the, one of the English players uh, told Benito Carboni to get it in the mixer. And I just, I looked at, I looked at his face, and he was completely bemused by, one, what's the mixer? Two, where is the mixer? And three, how do I get it in the mixer? So uh, it's, I think it's a, you know, look, sport is often a, one of those things that, that drives you to learn maybe specific types of words to, to grasp a language. But I find it fascinating to see uh, that sort of development of, of, of uh, footballers both on and off the pitch, because language is so crucial, isn't it, to being comfortable in a new city, in a new place, wherever you might be settling. Yeah, and um, Alex and I have spoken before about um, my admiration for Petacek when at Arsenal, apparently, he learned the language of any incoming defender. So it didn't matter where they were from. He actually learned their language so that he could shout to them when he needed to, which I just thought was phenomenal. Um, so yeah, He's yeah. incredible. I think he, we, we, we spoke to him last year on Football Focus and there was one game where he had five different nationalities playing across the, the defence and he, he would tell them all uh, in their own language. I mean, that's that's unbelievable, isn't that it? That is. That's what Alex could do, you see, because Alex is <laughs> to speak to that was, that was always my idea, you know, to be able to speak to anyone in the world in their language and, and just be able to connect in that way. It takes a bit of time, but you get this. How many do you speak, Alex? Um, I've learned about 15 languages. Wow. Yeah. Um, and do, you, so yeah, do you think you are naturally, are you a naturally good learner of languages or have you taught yourself to be that way or is it? You know, is your, are you wired correctly for it? How, how do you sort of get your head around that? I think it's, it's probably a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I always think it's more of a skill than a kind of gift to learn a language. So it's something that kind of you have to train and you have to be motivated to do. And the more you, you stick with it, the better you get. Because I definitely remember not always finding it that easy. And still, when I learn a new language, it's not like it just goes straight in. But it's more like having gone through the process a few times, you you don't panic at the bits where you shouldn't panic and you kind of are patient and, and you know sort of how your brain works. So I think that's basically once you've done a couple of languages, you get very good at knowing how you learn um, as opposed to just kind of expecting it all to happen, if that makes sense. Have you found that, um, you know, having been a, being a novice at all of this, have you discovered that learning one language makes it really easy to learn another certain one? Or if you start learning like Swedish, is Danish easier? Or you know, how do, how do, how do, have you sort of got your head around that? Yeah, I mean, I think some languages definitely help each other. So, for example, if you learn Spanish, um, you'll probably find yourself being able to read and understand Portuguese and Italian quite quickly. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can speak those languages. You have to kind of learn them as well. But it's definitely a big leg up because especially with grammar and stuff, there's a lot of crossover with the vocabulary, you get a lot of help. So um, it's definitely learning three languages is not the same as learning one language three times. It gets easier and easier depending on the ones you learn. 
for sure. Okay, that's good. To, that's good to know. So, that's encouraging for the future. <laughs> <good right>? to, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> all right. Well, today's episode is all about people's questions that they've been sending in um, for, from the More Than Words listeners. So if perhaps we could start with this first one from at GTES, who's asking, do we think there's a big difference between Latin American Spanish and European Spanish? And is it better to learn one over the other? So I know both of you have been learning a little bit of Spanish. Is this something that's been um, on your minds at all? Yes, I, I definitely. I find a dictionary entry in Spanish incredibly, um, well, just kind of anxiety inducing because you will often see about five different translations depending on where you are, um, you know, whether it's Latin American or, or um, Iberian Spanish. So I, I guess, what do you, do you call, say Iberian or Peninsular or Lusitanian or what, what, what do we call them? <laughs> anyway. Well, you, you could say European, you could say Peninsular European. Spanish, whichever yeah. you prefer. Yes. Um, so that for starters is like, which one do I learn and how can I possibly learn far? You know, it just makes the, the kind of task of learning vocabulary absolutely enormous. Um, but that's where Rosetta is actually really useful, I think, because it, it just kind of allows you to narrow the field a little bit um, when you're learning and not worry about all that kind of extra stuff until you kind of get a little bit further along. I, I don't know if you found that, Dan. I got caught out a bit by that actually. The first 10 days I was, I discovered that I was learning uh, Latin American Spanish and then I went <laughs> back and started again. I, I mean, uh, in, my, in my ignorance, I didn't realize there were you know, variations to learn. So I thought, I mm, wonder what the other options are. And then I went back and I thought, oh no, I'll just start again. And I, I sort of looped, I missed the first week of uh, Peninsula Spanish or European Spanish, whatever we're calling it. Yeah. And then I, 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 I caught up with it from that point. But I think the, um, the other thing I didn't mention earlier, Alex, was that, I've I've always thought right. I'm definitely going to learn a language. When I went to Brazil, I found Portuguese for a for a sort of English ear. I found it completely impregnable. Me too. Um, I totally agree with you. I, 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 I couldn't. I just I, I just couldn't. I couldn't wire my brain no. to to get around it. No. Even to say obrigado or something, I just couldn't. I, that took me about a day. Uh, this, this, it's it's just, it produced a real block in my mind and it's possibly apart from Finnish the only time that I've just thought actually I'm going to give up I don't think I can do this which is not a great attitude um mm. but you can speak terrible attitude <laughs> yeah I mean I had a similar thing with Portuguese because obviously I speak Spanish I've spoken it for a long time but Portuguese was so frustrating because it felt like this should be so easy but it's not yeah. Um, and I think especially with the Brazilian one where kind of the D's are often pronounced as G's and things like that, it takes a long time to adjust. But I sort of, I went to Brazil for work for two weeks and was doing these workshops and we had simultaneous translation. So I had the luxury for two weeks of basically every word that came out of my mouth, I would immediately hear it in Portuguese uh, yeah. from the translator. So I then started to kind of play with them a little bit and be like, well, let's see how he translates this. Oh, that sounds interesting. And then the really good thing about learning Portuguese in Brazil is like, it's complete immersion. It's so hard to find people who uh, feel confident speaking English to you. So you just kind of get thrown in the deep end and you just have, have to swim, basically. Yeah, that's quite cool, so, isn't it? I don't know anyone that's... who's been to Brazil and not come back with at least a few words just because you don't really yeah. have any other choice. <laughs> but desperation, I think, is a, you know, the need to learn a language that that can really accelerate it, can't it? I mean, I'm again being, I remember being in China in a karaoke bar years ago with about as me and a cameraman called Bob, who's about as British as it can get. And neither of us spoke hardly any Mandarin whatsoever, but there were sort of 10 or 12 people around the table. And we managed to have a pretty decent conversation. Even And, and their English didn't even extend beyond hello and okay. And our Mandarin didn't, you know, go very much further in the other direction. We had a great night, um, <laughs> even though we weren't able to say much to each other. 
but that was, I remember walking back from that with Bob thinking, it's just so, we're, we're just so ignorant, aren't we? That, because there's so much more we could have learned from each other had we been able to speak each other's languages. Um, but, and that, I was thinking, if you're, if you're in that situation, you, you have to learn the language to get by, don't you? Because you can't, you can't live your life in another country not being able to speak anything. Yeah. Definitely. I think when you feel that need, you do it. And I think that's possibly one of the things that's missing sometimes when we learn languages in school. It can feel a bit theoretical, it can feel a bit, you know, irrelevant. But when you're in the place and you need to learn the language to eat, you learn the language for sure. Mm. Well, Dan, I know you're going to have to leave us sadly very shortly, but do you perhaps have any questions about your own language learning that you want to put to us before you go? Yeah, that'd be really helpful. Can I, first of all, can I say thank you to Susie for inspiring me? And I've, I've, really enjoyed uh, learning it on uh, Rosetta Stone far more than I thought I would when my when my kids hear me reciting <laughs> little uh, pockets of Spanish uh, back into my phone they, they always laugh their heads off but I, I'm not deterred by their embarrassment I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to get there I, I think that and that sort of ties in out to what I wanted to ask you and, and Susie about because I suppose in other areas of my life I like to know everything I want I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to knowledge I like to go into something with my eyes wide open and I think I, the one thing I'm struggling with really is sort of releasing the fact that I I don't need to know everything and uh, I will I will learn the processes and the words and all that sort of stuff as I go is that a normal position to be in or am I a weirdo <laughs> From my perspective, I, you know, I've been working with English for I don't know how many years and look at the dictionary every single day and genuinely every single day I discover a word that I either never heard of or never knew the origin of and I just think, how did I not know that? But that is the joy. So I think Alex might have a different view. I would just say, yeah, forget the idea of total mastery. It's just an impossible dream. Um, and and to use that awful cliche, it is the journey that counts. Um, but it genuinely is when it comes to language learning. Um, and it's just that joy of discovering a gem that actually might ring bells in your head because it's related to an English word that you know, or you know, or even an Afrikaans word. You can you can begin to see the connections, and that that too is a real uh, pleasure, I think. I completely agree with Susie. I mean, I think um, well, a friend of mine, this isn't my analogy, this is from a friend of mine, but I'm going to pinch it. Um, she said that basically learning a language is like looking at a picture, um, kind of very, so if we look at that nice picture behind Susie, if we look at it very, very close very up. Very nice, though, isn't it? Lovely picture. If we look at it very close up, it doesn't really make very much sense. We just see kind of a few colours, a few lines, you know, and that's basically like the early stages of learning a language. It's literally like, you see everything in such close detail, but it doesn't really make sense. And the more you learn, you start to move further and further away from it, further, further back. And gradually we can see the whole thing like we can now. Um, but the early learning stages of learning a language are very much like that. You've just got to be a bit patient. And I think that's actually a kind of a sensation that we don't always hear about. And we don't talk about when we learn a language. It can be quite frustrating and it can be quite disorientating to be having to be learning a lot of things that we don't really understand why they're working the way they do or why we're learning them but it does make sense in the end you just got to trust the process and you know keep taking little steps back until you can see the whole thing that's, that's very helpful i will um i will plow on and enjoy it along the way thank you very much for that adios dan good luck buena suerte uh, encantada de conocerlo is that right yes Perfect. i get a message you in spanish later <laughs> okay <laughs> see you later guys lovely to see you take care Bye. Alex, interestingly, is that if I'm saying that to both of you, is that should that be conocerlo or conocerla or what's the what should what's the right way? It should to say be conocerlos. Los. Los, of course. Yeah. Yes, excellent. The two of them. See, I'm learning all the time. It's 
Good. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Cheers. Take care. Cool. So staying with the Spanish theme, um, our next question is actually from TikToker Daniela, um, whose TikTok video on different English accents and Spanish we analysed in our episode on accents. Her TikTok name is Daniela Mason 98, if you want to see some more accent-related content from her. Her question is, what is your opinion on Spain's feminist language reform attempts, i.e. introducing feminine alternatives for job titles ending in O, such as La Medica? Should this be introduced in teaching the language as opposed to teaching that masculine gender represents both? Mm. Wow. What are your thoughts on this, Susie? It's quite a big I, topic. Yeah, it is. I, um, yeah, that's it, it is a big topic. Um, and obviously there have been similar movements in English as well. Um, you know, it's it's much considered to be much better now to talk about actors rather than actresses, etc. Uh, although, you know, arguably that still keeps the masculine suffix, so um it hasn't quite gone as far as um uh, you know, as possibly has been mooted in Spanish. I find, I think we have a question um, that came in about um, genders in foreign languages. And, you know, what, why is a table feminine in one language and masculine in another? You know, who on earth decided this? And the answer is so murky and so elusive because actually we just don't know. Um, and it is unfortunately just a question of rote learning there. So I doubt very much that right at the beginning there was any particular agenda going on in terms of um, deciding gender um, with a different spelling. Um, but obviously it has all sorts of ramifications these days. I think I think I admire the inspiration and the motivation for it and I absolutely see why it is important linguistically to challenge the patriarchy um, that you know presides over so much over culture as well as, as inevitably language as a result. My worry is that by imposing reforms through some kind of academy or some kind of, um, you know, a decision that's made by an outside authority, that actually that is going to constrict language in a way that wouldn't be the case if it naturally evolved and also to cause complete confusion on a practical level. Um, you know, we've spoken before about the spelling reforms in, in Germany and, you know, the pulping of millions of textbooks that involved, were involved there um, and the confusion amongst school kids. It took quite a while for those ripples to actually, um, you know, smooth out on the waters of German. So that would be my worry is the imposition of a new order on a language which goes against everything that I believe in, which is that it should evolve naturally. But having said that, I totally understand why it is important to challenge the sort of quite um, instinctive or lazy, depending on your view, um, you know, following of, of typically male um, sort of patterns within language and male formulations. And I think we do do it instinctively. And um, you know, I find myself doing it. If, if I'm referring to a certain trade, I will automatically say he or I'll automatically say she if it's if it's a different profession. And I think it's really important to challenge ourselves with that. But I would say it's no easy feat, that one. H how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's always very difficult to kind of um, impose something on a language. I mean, I think what we know about languages is that they evolve naturally and ultimately ways of expressing yourself and using certain words have always got to come from the speakers themselves and if you start telling people how to speak in one way or another it's probably not going to work having said that though I mean I, like you I mean I completely understand the motivations behind 
people who want to kind of represent feminine endings more in Spanish and, you know, living in Spain, I see it all around me all the time. So, for example, increasingly when you see signs uh, addressed to people, they'll be using feminine endings rather than masculine endings, which is quite nice because, mm. you know, it, you, none of the meaning is lost in, in using as instead of os as an ending. Um, but it does make you think. You know, and it does just kind of stop and make you think about the fact that, you know, if, if you were a woman reading that sign and said, "os," you know, you, you may feel a little bit excluded by that. Yeah. Um, there was a Spanish political party. Well, there still is a Spanish political party um, called Podemos, who recently changed their name to Unidas Podemos, which means the we can as the united women. And they make a point of always using feminine endings on everything in Parliament, which is quite interesting and has kind of ruffled a few feathers amongst some groups in Spain. But I mean, it is interesting to see how people are using language to make a point um, about society and, and also about politics. Um, but as you say, I mean, I think it's difficult to kind of start um, imposing things like this on people or telling people how to speak, because ultimately language has to be natural and it has to come from yeah. people. OK, well, our next question is from Manu Nomad on Twitter, who says that she's learning German and French at the same time, and my mother tongue is Spanish and Catalan. Any tips on simultaneous learning? Mm. Well, we talked about this a little bit, didn't we, with European and, and Latin American Spanish. I think with languages as different as German and French, I think you would be absolutely fine speaking personally, because that was the route I took, um, German and French at the same time. Um, for me, the problem would come if the languages are so similar that actually the lines between them become a bit blurred. Um, but then, you know, there is an argument that I think Dan talked about Scandinavian um, languages early, earlier. You know, I think a Dane would understand a Swede and vice versa. So it's not too calamitous if you do end up mi mixing the two. But I'd be all for it. Um, I think it very is very much an individual decision and how whether or not you can um, juggle them. But in terms of replicating how we learn or how bilingual a child with bilingual parents or, or with you know parents who speak different languages how they learn is definitely absorbing both languages at the same time and that is a very natural process so I'd be all for it. I completely agree I mean German and French is a very common combination for yeah. people learning languages in the UK for example it's very common yeah. to do both at university at the same time. Um, and this question reminds me a little bit of uh, what we're hearing from Thomas Back back in episode one who uh, the neuroscience professor who was talking about the fact that we see the brain as almost like a, a sock drawer uh, where you can only fit a certain number of socks in it and when there's enough <laughs> socks in it that's it it bursts but really the brain is like a muscle and you can train it and you can expand it and the more kind of strain you put on it by learning one or two languages or three or four languages the, the greater it can grow um, I think it's just maybe you need to be realistic in your expectations and, and you know be aware that it may not go as smoothly as you want but there's no reason why you can't train your brain to get up to that yeah 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 so I, I think our answer is yes please do Please do. German and French and Spanish. <laughs> okay, our next question is from Norse Langman, who is asking, if you're learning another language, how many dialects of that language should you learn? Mm. I guess also we've been talking about with the Spanish from South yeah. America and Europe. Yeah, um, and that's really tricky. Ugh. Instinctively, I think my my answer to this is possibly too traditional and it may not match modern uh, language learning recommendations but I I think with English at least um, if I was learning English I'd want to start with what was accepted to be the standard pretty much or the, the standard the, the most widely used 
Um, and that would include slang, um, particularly, that was also kind of standard slang across the country. And then I'd move on to the different dialects and the different um, accents, I, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether or not I'm, that's a really, you know, old fashioned, outdated approach. Um, but that, that would be totally my instinct. Um, so, for example, I didn't really start hearing Plattdeutsch in, uh, when I was learning German until quite late on. And I think when I went to Munich and then went to Hamburg, I kind of absorbed the different vocabulary and the different accents as I went along. And I certainly haven't made a concerted effort at the beginning to kind of embrace all of those, because I think that would have become a gargantuan task. Definitely. I think I definitely agree with you. Um, I think the key, the key is being consistent, basically, and choosing a dialect that you want to learn and a dialect that makes sense for you to learn probably because of who you know or where you go in that country or where you aspire to be but also just being mindful of the other dialects and being mindful of the fact that that things are different um but i don't know also i think it's quite important to uh, the reason why it's important to be consistent is so you don't end up with a sort of patchwork version of the language where you have a few words from this part of the country a few words from that part of the country and I think if you speak like that, in some ways, it's very beautiful to be able to encompass all of that diversity in the way you speak. But in other ways, it can just leave people a bit confused about who you are and, and what your story is, because they're probably not quite used to coming across people who mix and match so many different dialects at the same time. Yeah. Um, but then that's also sort of an inevitable part of the language learning process at some time, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I also would say that I think the very fact that we you know if, if you are open to the fact that there are lots and lots of different dialects lots of variations and there's no fixed standard then you're already halfway there because you're already opening up the um possibility of absorbing different dialects and absorbing you know dialect is both accent and vocabulary um so i think if your mind is open to the fact that they exist um that you know that's already a big step in itself Absolutely. Okay, here's a question that'd be very interested in your answer in Susie. This is from Josie Moran, who is asking, does knowledge of foreign languages improve your mother tongue too? Yes, definitely. Uh, without a doubt, I was at a recording of the comedy version of the show that I work on um, called Eight Out of Ten Cats Does Countdown the other night. And we had a, a British comedian called Rob Beckett on, who was having an argument with me about how Latin and Greek were totally useless and there was absolutely no point and whoever used them anyway. And I, you know, I could totally see where he was coming from, except for the fact that they have percolated through so much of, um, uh, you know, so many languages and, and particularly through English as well. Um, so yes, I mean, Latin and Greek are languages apart, I guess, ancient Greek anyway, um, but, Definitely. I think the half the fun of learning Spanish for me, learning French, learning German has been those hidden connections, you know, the connections that I didn't realise existed. And it's it's a wonderful kind of it, it just you can almost feel the bits of the puzzle kind of unlock. Um, and yeah, it's quite it's, it's hard to sort of explain that kind of eureka moment of, oh, that's why we you know, that's why we call this that or the other. Um, so. First of all, I would say there's just joy in those connections. Secondly, I would say it helps you decode so much as well um, when it comes to your mother tongue. I mean, this is assuming that there is a connection, even an ancient one between your mother tongue and those languages that you're learning um, in this particular aspect. But uh, yeah, so I would definitely say learning French, learning German, learning Spanish has helped my English no end and actually has got me 
set me off on trails where I'm exploring the etymology of words that I never would have thought twice about before. Okay, well, going back to the question of gender in language, we've now got a question from um, the Eggbeard, who is asking, I'm trying to learn languages, but no one ever explains why something's male and something else is female. If I knew the root of, say, German, I would understand it a lot better. I think we've already talked about this, and I have a feeling we've not got a very satisfactory answer for no. this one, which is, unfortunately, it's just the way it is. Um, it is. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it, it goes back such a long way that it's impossible to know what the rationale was. And even if there was a rationale, you know, it may just have been as, as kind you know, it, we have to remember that, that vocabulary started off being very, very small. And then obviously it, it, um, it grew and grew and grew. So meat in English meant all food for a very long time. And it was only, you know, so green meat were vegetables, for example. Um, it was only later that actually became a certain type of food. Likewise, deer, deer, was any animal. Um, and it was only much later that it was applied specifically to a deer because so many other animals had kind of been named, et cetera, as we went along. So I don't know whether it was a systematic um, gendering of language, if you go back to Proto-Indo-European, the ancient language. Um, so we can't really give a reason as to why a given noun is masculine or feminine. And as we've said, it kind of differs from, um, you know, from language to language. So you have el color, but in French you have la couleur. Mm -hmm. um, why? Why would a color be feminine in one language and, and you know, masculine in another? I have absolutely no idea. So I'm sure culture came into it, convention possibly too, but it is frustrating that if you're learning multiple languages, you can't count on a consistency of gender across them, um, even with, you know, languages that have quite a close affinity. So I'm really sorry to say that I can't, I can't give you an easy tip as to how to remember gender. It is just a question of learning them. Um, unless you found a way, Alex. No, I mean, honestly, I think it just comes with use. I mean, um, the first time you hear a word, the gender of it seems totally random, totally um, inexplicable, basically, as to why would it be one gender that, rather than another. But after kind of six months, a year of speaking that language, you reach a point where it's absolutely inconceivable that, for example, la hora or, you know, the or something in, in, in either of those languages could be anything except feminine. Yeah. Um, because it's just you get so used to hearing it and you get so used to picking it up. And I think that's really how native speakers develop their sense for gender. It's not that they see an object and can immediately sense whether it's going to be one gender or another. It's just from hearing people talking about it and hearing people um, referring to it as a specific gender. Um, yeah. With German, I think it's particularly difficult because sometimes you just can't tell. For example, I had no idea it was the insert for a long time, I would always say das Insel until someone pointed out to me that that was wrong. Um, and there really was no way that you could tell. So you just have to learn it. But yeah. I think the good news um, for everyone who's struggling with this issue of gender in a language is that even though it's very important to learn and to be mindful of, there's very few instances where getting the wrong gender is gonna lead to being misunderstood. Yeah. yeah. Okay, the next question is uh, from Ali Liom Kirsty. This question, I think, is directed to me. It says, hey, which language did Alex find most difficult, easy, and fun to learn, and why? Ah. Um, which is an interesting question. Is the idea that a language could be difficult, easy, and fun to learn <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah. Um, I think all languages have got the things about them which are more difficult than others, and all languages have things that are easier than others. I think definitely one of the most challenging languages I ever put my um, attention to was Hungarian, uh, just because of the fact that you know, like we're saying, when you learn French, when you learn Spanish, when you learn German, you get a lot of help from words that sound similar from, 
your native language, but Hungarian, it really feels like this is a language which has arrived from space. And it takes a long time to start to see uh, where all of the words come from. Um, so I think the experience of learning Hungarian that was very different to the others is that there was a lot of vocabulary memorizing to kind of just get basic words. So for example, always remember the word that caused me the most problems was the word for camera, which in every other language I'd ever learned was basically camera, um, which in Hungarian is finkibizurgip, um, which took a long time to decode. Wow. And then, so finkibizurgip, a long word, and then it all started to make sense the more you went. So for example, the word for gip is a machine. So for example, an aeroplane is a which means a flying machine. Oh, okay. um, a keep is a picture. Oh. Uh, so that's the fin keep is a keep, and then fin is light. So then you get the light picture taking machine, which oh, is the fin. That. That's amazing. So there's another one of those examples where you see a word like that and you think, oh, how am I ever going to learn this? But then yeah. when you start to understand the logic of how language like Hungarian puts words together, it starts to get very, very fun and it also starts to get a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, no, I love that. That's brilliant. Lots of fun for, um, for etymologists, I think, Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, then we have a question here from Eli Hallam PR. Which language is most similar to English and would you say it's easiest to learn? Mm. Um, okay, well, I think the most similar possibly is Frisian, um, which not many people are probably going to learn. So that's the kind of West Germanic language. And then by extension, Dutch, possibly, and you've mentioned Dutch, um, because of course we are at heart a Germanic language. So a lot of the French that we have in our language came in after the Norman conquest. Um, so French will definitely help you understand a lot of English words, but I wouldn't say it's the closest. Um, so I would say, yeah, so Frisian, maybe Dutch, then German, um, then maybe French, possibly. These, this is my kind of instinct anyway. Um, so is German easy to learn? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> very hard for me to answer this because I started learning German just at the right time for me as it turns out and I had a very uh, brilliant teacher who was very systematic but also quite inspirational so I had lots of good things colliding at the same time um, so I found it easier than French personally um, the accent takes a little while but once you start to see the connections between those German words and the English words I think that's where the fun really begins and also I would say dispense with any assumption that German is guttural and hard and ugly because it only is if you want it to be and you want it to sound that way otherwise it's beautiful. Absolutely. What would you say was the closest when, of all the ones that you've learned? Well, I think it's so difficult isn't it? I think one of the things about English that that sort of is it's a disadvantage in a way when it comes to learning other languages that English is a little bit of an outlier as a language because it's similar in some ways to Germanic languages similar in some ways to Romance languages it's also heavily influenced by Celtic languages which means yeah. that we have a lot of constructions that you don't see in either Romance or Germanic languages that, that come from but that you will see in languages like Welsh and Irish which I suppose not a lot of people always look at so it depends what way you want to look at it I think when I was learning Dutch, it definitely felt like that was the closest language to English that I'd ever studied. But yeah. at the same time, there's a lot of things about it that are very different and a lot of things that need um, a lot of careful attention. Um, one of the things, I mean, there's things about Welsh that mean that when you learn it as an English speaker, you'll find it very logical. So for example, the way you form questions, which we do in English with the auxiliary verb, do you speak, for example, you have something similar in Welsh, like dichin, um, and now I'm going to embarrass myself with my Welsh, aren't I? Dichin Sharad would be do you speak, I think. 
uh, in Welsh and that dich is basically doing the same thing as do in English and you don't yeah. really find that in any other languages so it's in a way it's a little bit of a disadvantage that with English we we don't have a language that's exactly the same or very very close in the same way that if you're a native speaker of um, Portuguese learning Spanish and understanding Spanish is a little bit easier than understanding other languages but I suppose you know as much as it's a disadvantage it's also an advantage because it means that um, we can really go in any direction from English and we can really kind of learn any language with the same level of, of advantage as, um, as we would before. Yeah that's a good way of looking at it unless unless you're talking about Finnish which is another one that I find completely impossible but I think we have a question actually asking that don't we what's the most difficult <laughs> difficult language to learn that definitely was it for me yes did you learn Finnish at some no point? I was in a long time ago I was um an au pair in Germany for um a Finnish family who had um adopted a beautiful child from Korea so the the child had, had been exposed to so many different languages and I was there to try and help with English but I also had to speak a little bit of Finnish and I found it incredibly hard I mean I think um this this is kind of anecdotal so you might be able to confirm do you, do you speak Finnish no no okay well I think each verb has 200 possible endings or something like that um and the, the sort of grammar is so intricate and so fascinating and it's also so pithy so you can express in Finnish quite a complicated emotion in English or a complicated process in English um so I would absolutely love to learn it but I think that for me would be top of the list I think most people would say Mandarin for the most difficult one possibly because you've got all sorts of tonal things as well as um uh you know alphabets etc but or writing systems but yeah for me it would be Finnish what, what about you yeah I mean th this is Will Hurl 2's question of which is the hardest language to master and I think again it's very difficult to answer this question because it's so subjective isn't it, it depends what other languages you um yeah, you know it depends on all sorts of stuff um, but I mean, that's one side of it, of kind of what, uh, how easy a language is, how easy another language is to learn based on your mother tongue. Then there's the other side of it, which is how easy is a language to learn based on its availability to you and, and how much contact you have with it. So, for example, it's very, very hard to learn any language in the world that you never come across in your daily life and that you never have any motivation to learn. But, for example... Mm -hmm. If you live in the UK, there's so many languages that are spoken there that if you started learning them, you'd probably find people on your street, in your town, or very, very close to you who you'd be able to practice it to. So, for example, I mean, I grew up going to school in, in Hammersmith in West London, where we had an enormous Polish community in, in 2000s, and sort of you would hear Polish all the time. And even though Polish is not an easy language from a grammatical point of view, just that constant contact with certain words and certain expression meant that you were able to learn it. So really... Yeah. I think it's, it's worth answering this question, not just thinking about how hard a language is from a grammatical point of view, but also thinking about your access to it and thinking about that's, its yeah, I think role in your really life. Point, actually, really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still oh, Callum, sorry, go on. Sorry, I'm, I'm still going to learn Finnish one day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, Callum Pred asks, do people care if you have good grammar and how much do you need to worry about it? I'm very glad that someone's asked this question. <laughs> It's a tricky one this um i think for me the sole reason for learning grammar is that you can express yourself articulately um clearly and without kind of tripping up or or 
tripping up whoever's whoever your audience is and so you know immediately if you make a grammatical error um the, the person who is reading your stuff or listening to your stuff is automatically going to focus on that and so the power of your message is is lost um learning grammar per se can be really fun um so i got a kick out of learning german grammar but i wouldn't say that um, I mean, obviously, that was the sort of the one of the bedrocks of the language for me. But I wouldn't say that actually making it a kind of aim or end in itself was particularly beneficial. It was just a sort of key part of the process for me. Um, and it goes back to, you know, do you need to know the grammar of your mother tongue or is it something that is just instinctive to you? Um, I now do know a lot more about English grammar thanks to German, but I probably would have been okay without it. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot of debate about whether grammar should be taught explicitly for our mother tongue in um, uh, in schools. And it's come in into fashion, out of fashion, in and, in and out, in and out. And I think that debate will always go on. So I'm really hedging my bets here. I would say, yes, grammar is important, but possibly not for the reason that most people would expect, not as an end in itself, but purely because it helps you to be articulate. I agree. I mean, I've always seen grammar as sort of like the polish that you put on a language. It makes you sound really, really good and it makes you sound really um, coherent and all that kind of thing, but it's not always a necessity, I think, for making yourself understood. I mean, the way we make ourselves understood is with words and that's why you can communicate, I mean, not very kind of nicely but you can communicate just with words which is why I'd always say that the focus has to be on vocabulary um, but again I think it also depends on the language you're learning because ultimately it depends on the expectations of, of the speakers that you're you're coming across so for example some languages are quite used to people learning the language and maybe saying sentences without an awful lot of grammar and they might be a bit more tolerant of a few slips here and there but I remember when I was living in um, provincial Russia during my year abroad I met people who'd never met a foreigner in their entire lives so it was completely incomprehensible to them unthinkable the idea that there'd be people out there who didn't speak perfect Russian and they just couldn't understand why I was struggling with certain things that for them were so natural so it really depends on on the on the language you're learning with those big languages like Spanish French German they're probably more used to people speaking it as a non-native speaker and then they're a bit more forgiving with ones where they're less used to foreigners coming in and learning the language. It's not so much that they care, but it might take them a little bit longer to to catch up with you if your grammar needs a little bit of work. Yeah, I think I think that's very fair. And I would also say, you know, you might impress somebody fantastically with your flair of using the subjunctive in French or Spanish or whatever, but you don't necessarily have to know that it's called the subjunctive um, in order to impress. Exactly. And our final question is from Jimpanzee666, who is asking, what is the origin of the word procrastinate, which is kind of what he's doing now? Uh, excellent. Yeah, well, um, inside procrastinate is the Latin cras, C-R-A-S, which means tomorrow. So strictly speaking, to procrastinate is to put something off until tomorrow. If you really want to go all Latin and actually you've got something that you want to put off until the day after tomorrow, you can perendinate because for the Romans, perendinus was the day after tomorrow. Uh, so I find that one quite useful. And if you really never want to get to something, you could either use the, the word from Devon, which is I'll do it directly, D-R-E-C-K-L-Y, which means yeah, one day. Uh, it's a bit like manana. Um, so, uh, yeah, you've got a whole choice there, but procrastinate has got tomorrow in it, strictly speaking. Which is the word crass in Latin, is that right? Yeah. That's very interesting because I think we have the Greek word amelo, 
um, which means a similar thing in modern Greek, and that comes from the word melon, which means future. Uh, uh-huh. So if you're amelo something, that means you're putting it off to the future, which I guess is a, uh-huh. it's a similar, it's sort of like a parallel origin, isn't it? Even though it's not from the same words itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've also got on my desk here this mug, which is procrastinating, procaffeinating, rather, which is defined as the ability to delay starting anything productive until you've had a coffee. Procaffeinating, wow. not in the dictionary. Not yet in the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that brings this series to a close. Hopefully you now feel better equipped than ever to begin your own language learning journey and even more motivated to keep the wheels firmly on the road to fluency. We've covered a range of topics, giving you tips on how to improve those different aspects of learning your new language, answering all your most pressing questions as well. We really hope you enjoyed this series and would welcome any feedback that you have or any topics that you'd like us to cover in the future, which you can just let us know about by tweeting at Rosetta Stone UK. Also, a final reminder to go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast for those special offers on all Rosetta Stone courses, including the lifetime subscription. As always, the link is in the episode description, so you can just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. Until then, goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Au revoir. Adios. Adeu. Leidraot. Wiesandlatashra. Stokalo. Ambanikashle. Das vidanya. Dovijenya.